0: Hey, Scene Vault listeners, are you a NASCAR collector? Well, we've got two great magazines for you. First up, we've got the 75 Greatest Drivers. Last season, NASCAR added 25 drivers to its Greatest Drivers list to celebrate their diamond anniversary, and we partnered with them to help tell their legendary tales. This 116-page magazine is packed with the stories that made each of these drivers the greatest we have ever seen. Printed in full color on glossy paper and delivered to fans inside a polybag to protect its contents, this magazine will sit on the coffee tables of NASCAR fans for years to come. There are also several different covers to collect, including unique designs for Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, and more. We've also got a few remaining copies of the 75th Anniversary magazine, featuring hundreds of pages of photos, profiles, iconic stories, and much, much more covering every single year of NASCAR. Both of these are shipping in high-quality poly bags to protect your collector's item. Get yours today at DailyDownForce.com slash shop. That's DailyDownForce.com slash shop.
1: Hey, y'all. Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Hill State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind the scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills.
2: He's got two things in his hand,
1: pipe wrench and channel lock pliers. And they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. Wasn't so, the first steel
2: they build, I bet. No. <laughs> no.
1: You know, you, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had <laughs> worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenueers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap cheapo cars and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him, and it, it, as he said it was a game of chicken and I was the chicken and so he ran <laughs> off the court. And actually he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson
3: at his daddy still when Junior got tangled up in a wire in a <laughs> yes. fence.
1: So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownforce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the
0: Scene Bought Podcast.
1: Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history.
2: Yeah, I kept telling him, I said, draft anything out there. If you find a seagull, get behind it. I said, you got to save us some fuel. It was one hell of a damn season I could have done without. To see your brother be misunderstood, it it hurts. I mean, because he's actually a pretty good guy. I wasn't working with him. I mean, I told him point blank, I'm not working with this son of a bitch. I said, if he tries to tell me what to do, I said, I'm going to whip his
4: ass. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston,
1: and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, first up this week. Before anything else, I would really like to express my condolences to Jack Ingram's family and friends. It was confirmed Friday that Jack had died and I got to know Jack when I was researching and writing second to none and his photo is on the spine of the book. It would not have been a true history of the Bush series, of course, without Jack Ingram, because he was just such a huge part of the early years of that division. And for many, many years, even before it was created and (laughs) That was a little bit of a sore subject with Jack (laughs) when somebody called him a two-time Bush series champion, he would invariably correct you and say that he was a five-time champion because he won three late model sportsman championships before what we now know as the Xfinity series was created. Then on top of that, as Mark Martin approached his win record, According to Jack, Mark was nowhere near <laughs> his total of wins in the late model sportsman division, what became the Bush series, what became the nationwide series, and what is now the Xfinity series. According to Jack, Jack's got 317 wins in that division. So not even Kyle Bush now is even close <laughs> to Jack's mark. So. Yeah, Jack was a very, very proud man. He was also one of the toughest competitors who ever stepped foot in a Bush Series garage.
4: You're absolutely right, Rick. And Jack is absolutely right. If the Bush Series didn't become the Bush Series until what, 1982? Is that read, the year, Rick? Read the book, man. <laughs> well, <laughs> don't just look at the pictures, read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, you well, are correct. Not today. Okay. Well, the many years before that, when his latest model sportsman circuit, Jack was a big-time winner and a multiple champion. So, naturally, he would remind us <laughs> of the victors and the championships of that era, which, indeed, do count. Now, I covered Jack many, many times in Bush Series races over the years at the various speedways. I did not interact with him as much as you did. So I was a little concerned when it was my duty as president of the National Motorsports Press Association to call Jack and tell him he had been elected to the Hall of Fame. Steve, you did that? I was the one. I was the one. I called him up, and I said, Jack, this is Steve Wade. Do you remember me? And he said, of course, Steve, I remember you. How are you doing? Ooh, that took a load off my my back. (laughs) And I told him he was elected to the NFA Hall of Fame. And he was just very, very pleased and just thanked me repeatedly. And I was just really happy for him. Well, How am I going to say anything that's going to match that? (laughs) (laughs) That Was the highlight of my
1: career. There I was the Bush series editor slugging it out in that garage. I wrote the book about the history of the Bush series and you call and tell him that he's been elected to the hall of fame. Nothing well, you got, you
4: is going to remember back. This was an NMPA thing <laughs> and I was the president of the NMPA. So I was the one to do the job. All right. Okay. All right. So here's my little piddling story about Jackie.
1: <laughs> I remember going to interview Jack for the book and he had this ledger where he had kept track of his winnings for the first season of what's now the Xfinity series. And not only did I see this as an important historical artifact, it was an important historical artifact. I was really kind of nervous when he said that he would loan it to me to photograph for the book. And certainly this was before smartphones and you had a camera on your phone that you could just take right then and there, but he actually loaned me this ledger and I was like, I don't know about this. And when I told him that he said, don't worry about it, Rick. Only way anything's gonna to happen to it is if you crash your car and it catches on fire on your way back home. <laughs> and I was like, Jack, I, I don't think I needed to worry about that. <laughs> I'm already worried enough. But during the process of writing that book, researching it, and then afterwards getting to know Jack, he took me to lunch one day at his local hangout there in Asheville. And if the Dawsonville pool room is all Elliot, this place, and I don't remember the name of it, but this place, I don't think it was completely Jack Ingram, but he was one of their favorite sons. (laughs) 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 And then one of my fondest memories of the whole second to none journey was the Bush series preview in 2001 when Jack and Sam Ard and Tommy Houston all joined me to sign hero cards, advertising the books released later that year. And Steve, just to sit in their presence and to hear them going back and forth, just like they were in the garage all those years ago, that was something I will never forget. Absolutely will never forget.
4: And Rick, you should never forget it. You were among giants. Quite a privilege for you.
1: Steve, this week in our first segment, we have had some packed, interviews before but this one is crazy this week jeff hammond talks about the 1989 daytona 500 and how it was basically the fulfillment of his career he talks about daryl's injury the following year at daytona he talks about dw's decision to move to his own team and his own reluctance to follow and finally he discusses his beautiful awesome absolutely shining relationship with Daryl's general manager a year or so later. Being a little sarcastic about that one, aren't you, Rick? I, I was hoping you would catch on to that tone. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> and let's just say that you were quite accurate. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Nothing shiny about that.
2: <laughs>
1: then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the April 25th, 1991 issue of Winston Cup scene that carried coverage of an absolutely crazy day at North Wilkesboro. The race was won by Daryl Waltrip in his first victory since leaving Hendrick Motorsports to form his own team. And Steve, it was one of those days at North Wilkesboro (laughs) (laughs) and you and I both loved these kinds of days at the racetrack, especially when we're right in the middle of it, but everybody was mad at everybody else due to a huge number of accidents. And despite that teams were happy with the new pit road rules that went into effect for this race at North Wilkesboro, which ended an early season onslaught of changes that came in the wake of Mike Rich's accident the year before in Atlanta.
4: Yeah. NASCAR was trying every way it could to make pit road much safer. And it tried a lot of things. And I'll touch on that a little bit later.
1: Listeners, if you could, please consider helping us out on Patreon, support us on PayPal. Every little bit helps. Our supporters, I really consider them a part of our family. I consider them a part of our support staff because without them, what we do would not be possible. And I truly mean that. So if you could, please consider supporting us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the vault podcast. How was the transition there?
2: It was pretty good. It was a little awkward to begin with, uh, as I said. You know, Waddell and I didn't really see eye to eye, but I'd like to think that because I became like a an interpreter between Daryl and Waddell and and the buffer to a certain degree, it got better for him, and it got and it worked for me, and in in the in the uh, as should say, under the circumstances, I gained a new respect for Waddell, and uh, that was a good thing for me because Waddell's a fine man, uh, talented en- engine guy. He knows that he's he's a good crew chief, but he just wasn't a good crew chief for Daryl. So I'm glad we got to work together, and for me to, to change my viewpoints on what I what I thought about him in the long run. And uh, so it worked out well, you know, and and we were able to kind of pull a. Hail Mary that year and get Daryl to win yeah. and you know, move on to, to 89.
1: 1989 Daytona 500 is the first race that I can remember watching from flag to flag. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm from Nashville, and Daryl was from Franklin. I, I loved the look of that car. <laughs> so uh, before I got into the sport professionally, there was Richard Petty, and there was Daryl Waltrip because of the 1989 Daytona 500. hmm what do you remember about that day?
2: I, I remember, you know, not just about that about that day, but because of the circumstances leading into that week, uh, we had a, had a fast race car and set outside pole. Did it on Goodyear tires, and that's when the tire wars were going on between yeah. Goodyear and Hoosier. Goodyear had had some failures. I think it was Bill Elliott had wrecked and cracked his wrist or something, and they were really concerned about how it was going to work out in the race, so they pulled their tire, long story short. But because of what was getting ready to happen with the pulling of the tire, we had to, we started on the outside pole, or on the pole for our qualifying race, and we had to change to Hoosiers. We had not practiced on Hoosiers, so we got to qualifying race, and we didn't run terrible, but we didn't run good. And the lack of practice subsequently after that, we're, our setup was off. That's where I'm trying to go with this, is that we struggled with that. Their tire size was a little bit different, and it, it affected our handling package. We, like I said, we we struggled. And that day when they started off, you know, we fell back, and we kept adjusting and kept adjusting and kept adjusting and we still everything that we did the the car was not really responding the way it needed to and we couldn't run with Earnhardt we couldn't run with our teammate Kenny Schrader so it was just apparent that we just we were going to be you know destined to finish you know fifth or sixth somehow or another like that but uh, as the race progressed and because of trying to work on it you know we would sometimes come down pit road whenever everybody else would stay out. We got a little bit off out of sequence with everybody. And called Daryl late in the race and said, hey, I think we can make this on one more stop if we start doing saving some fuel now and try to get to here. Okay, if that's what you want to try it, let's go for it. And we're not going to win any other way, and that was, that was fine with him. So we made our final stop, and I had gotten everybody together. I asked Sandy Jones. I said, Sandy, are we going to get everything out of that fuel cell? He said, yes, sir. Every drop of it, every bit that's in there, you're going to get it out. I said, Mike, I need for you and the big guy to make sure you get this thing packed full of fuel. I mean, it's got to be packed with fuel. So, guys, make sure you change the tires. Get everything tight. We don't need to be coming down pit road. Made that final stop. Nailed it! Everybody did what they're supposed to. Mike Powell packed it full, and we started going for it. And I, you know, I kept telling him, I said, "Draft anything out there. If you find a seagull, get behind it." I said, "You got to save us some fuel." He said, "All right, buddy, we got it." So we set out there, and he got pretty comfortable behind uh, Alan Kowicki, I remember, and we just like say we were just following them along, following them along, following them along. No cautions came out, and all of a sudden, you know. Schrader has to stop. You know, her and her, everybody that we were kind of figuring in that we were at the race started doing their thing. Well, as soon as they did that, we we were able to uh, wound up with about almost a three quarter lap lead uh, on the rest of those guys. It's us and Kawiki, and he says, "Daryl, comes. I need to make a pass on him." I said, "You follow him. You follow him. But don't you? Do, you draft everything. Don't you pass nobody. You stay out at gas as much as you can." Kowicki has his problem. says he had a flat tire. I don't know if it was flat tire or fuel. It doesn't matter. He drops the, go to the pits. So we're going along there, and we get down to about three laps to go, and Daryl starts getting, are you sure we're okay? I said, trust me, just keep going. Two laps to go, fuel pressure kind of does like this. <laughs> he said, I'm out of gas, I'm out of gas. You're not out of gas. Just shake it. Shake it, baby. Get to, Shake it hard. And all I wanted him to do was try to shake the inside of the fuel cell because what it does that memory foam is in there, it'll capture fuel particles. And you shake it hard, it'll give you some more of what you think you got. So we kept telling him that. But he came across there and took the white flag and said, I'm out of gas, my gas, I don't care. You keep going, keep going, keep going. I kept telling him, don't let up, don't let up. He came all the way around. I'll never forget Randy Dorton. So he's entering turn three, he's, on, he's under his own power. He come off of four. He's going to be all right, Jeff. He's going to be all right. And sure enough, he came all the way around, wound up winning that race.
1: What was that moment like for you personally? You'd won a lot of races, mm-hmm. and you'd won championships,
2: but you'd never won the Daytona 500. Never won the Daytona 500, and I got goosebumps right now thinking about it. Yeah. That's what it does for you. I mean, when you watch it on replay, you read it here on the scene, I mean, uh, that, that right there is, is to me, I mean, it's we climbed Mount Afri- Mount Everest that day, and, and that's what Daytona is all the way all about. I mean, since 1979, I've been trying to get to that victory lane, and yeah, I'd been there. I was there on Saturday, you know, with with uh, Daryl in his late uh, in his uh, Grand National car, and not the same. Sunday was was it's the Mac Daddy of all victory lanes. It really is. And to know that you were able to give him something that he had been trying for over 17 years, I don't know, we laugh about the numbers, all that kind of comes into play, but to understand the relief on a man's face and when you've accomplished as much as he had accomplished to finally give him what he wanted, and what he, I mean, he needed it. He really did. He needed that, to, I think, to feel like that he was one of the greatest of all times. It doesn't get any better than that. I mean, just... Rick, the thing about me and the way I look at anything is I take personal satisfaction. Finishing races, I take personal satisfaction in being in the top five, and I take extra, extra satisfaction out of winning. Winning is... It's fleeting, but the fact that you are able to do something on a regular basis and do it right, it's just, it's satisfying. It's satisfying and gratifying because you get a chance to also, when you've been through some of the things I've been through, you know, I, I found out what it was like to win and not be the guy that you know they're kind of praising for it. You know, you're a part of it. You, know, you take satisfaction in that, but when you step up and you get to that point where you've been anointed, I don't know if that's the right word to use, you, you're you in charge of it and you're instrumental in the, the outcome. It's just so satisfying. I felt like that was the most defining point in my career of taking something that's not quite right, work on it to the best of your ability, and yet pull the team together and in the end, all of that right there coming together to equal winner. You know, Daryl did his job, Sandy Jones did his job, Randy Dorton and his guys did their job with the engine. It, it was it's a total package to me. It's the most total race that I can ever remember being a part of. You know, we've had some good ones, but that one from start to finish of dealing with the adversity, uh, it's just it's so satisfying.
1: Well, speaking of winning. Who won the fight in the garage area after the All Star race that year?
2: let <laughs> just call a draw. Just call it a draw. I don't think anybody won there, but you know, in the in the end, you know, everybody said, "Well, Rusty got to win in the 200000 Yeah, but it cost him his his uh, status as far as popularity with the with the fans. I think it put him he he replaced Daryl about of being the bad guy. Yeah, and uh, I think that's so. So fitting in so many different ways is that Daryl was able to finally, you know, get a, get a white hat and take the black one off.
1: How strange a position was it for you to see that transformation? Because you had worked for Daryl Waltrip at a time when fans literally booed when he crashed at Charlotte, and he proceeded to get out of the car and talk to reporters, and, and, and invite people down to the Kmart, Kmart parking lot. The Big K parking lot. Yep. No,
2: to, Kmart. To it was Kmart then, not Big K. It was Kmart.
1: Well, you had seen him there in that position. Yeah. But then you go to Charlotte in 1989 for mm-hmm. the All-Star race. He gets wrecked. And all of a sudden, somebody, everybody's booing somebody else. So that was a pretty big transformation. What was it like? for you to see that in him personally.
2: It, I think it was it, here again. It's like, holy cow, can you believe this? Yeah. I mean, they actually, I think they like you because <laughs> otherwise and you always never felt like, you know, you were working for a guy that the people liked. Um, see, I'm, I'm fortunate in the fact that I choose people that I want to be friends with and people that I respect. Based off of what my personal views are. Okay. And I have learned through my career, sometimes personal views and professional views are two different things. Daryl was that way. Personally, I didn't like him. Professionally, fantastic. Because of that professional deal, I became, it's like a brother to me. And to see your brother be misunderstood, it, it hurts. I mean, because he's actually a pretty good guy, but yet a lot of people, I mean, you know, they did not like him because of the fact of how he acted and how he treated Richard Petty and uh, David Pearson and people like that. He uh, he struggled. I mean, he, I mean, because uh, the fact that you know, like I say, he got getting verbal conflicts with uh, with Kale. He did the same thing with Bobby Allison. You go down the list. I mean, you know, he's he's had several people that wouldn't send him a Christmas card if hell was freezing over. So, to see him finally, you know, get that opportunity to kind of bask in his glory, I think was it was it was cool. It really was because I had been on the other end of it and gotten booed because of him. And honestly, in the very beginning, I didn't care. Yeah, I mean, it, it <laughs> didn't, didn't bother me none. Kelly Yarbrough was my favorite, but Daryl won me over. I Still think the world of Kale. But Daryl, you know, showed me a side of him, and he also showed me—I think—or gave me a better understanding of why he was the way he was. And He felt like that was what he needed to be respected. You know, let you know, put up or shut up, and you know, don't you know, don't uh, walk the walk unless you, and don't talk to talk unless you walk the walk. And he was good at doing the walk. You know, not too good on icky shuffle, but he could pretty good at doing <laughs> the walk. So. It just, it's the culmination of all of the above. It really is. I mean, because he has passion when it comes to this sport so many different ways. And I, re- I really felt like he was the first, I think he was the first really defining personality that turned heads. A lot of the guys, you know, that, that I remember, you know, they weren't, they didn't. They didn't possess the ability to to have a one liner. Uh, I mean, Richard, he's a good spokesperson. He's he's a great guy, one of the greatest guys ever, but he just didn't come across David the same way. You know, I ain't got nothing to say. I was, drive race cars. Kale, same thing with him. I mean, it, it, they they just didn't. They just didn't turn the corporate heads like we needed to, and at the same time, did not get the fans. As, up, as charged up as, as he could. In a, in a negative manner, but at the same time, he get him yeah. charged up. Yeah. You knew he was there.
1: The very next year, again, at Daytona, Daryl gets hurt mm-hmm. really bad during practice. What were those next days, weeks, and months like for you trying to manage that team?
2: That was a challenge like I could have never imagined because I knew that when I got there and saw how much pain he was in, I immediately knew that he wasn't going to start the race that afternoon or that next day. And getting hold of Rick and trying to figure out what are we going to do. uh, Fortunately, here again, this is one of those personal relationship scenarios that I knew Jimmy Horton. I'd seen Jimmy run Daytona. And he was about the same size as Daryl having to make a team decision that no Daryl's not going to start this race. And I had to get somebody in there that I felt confident in and at the same time somebody that NASCAR would accept. I mean, this was a lot of things that were going on. And I'm I'm trying to get all that took care of before I could even go to the hospital and check on Daryl. So it's um it's one of those in your face moments that you know you don't plan for. And from that period until he was able to return it was one hell of a damn season i could have done without because the number of drivers that came through the number of drivers that tore up brand new race cars i mean it, it's just a lot it was a lot
1: he had evidently already made the decision when the accident happened to leave hendrick motorsports to form his own deal mm-hmm. were you always going to be a part of that package or was that something that maybe came along later
2: um, I don't know if I should give you one of these Paul Harvey moments or not.
1: I'll have at it.
2: This this is kind of like for the rest of the story. A lot of people don't realize this, but I actually went and talked to Rick about it. I, I thought about staying because I thought it was a bad move.
1: Did you really? I did. Okay.
2: I, I I didn't. I did not like what we were what he was trying to do. But he had an opportunity. Um, that I could see his viewpoint, but I also knew what we were getting ready to get into. It was late in the year, and you don't have any deals. You don't have any cars. It was was just a lot of stuff that I could see that this is this is going to be. I mean this this is going to be bad. (laughs) This is going to be bad because I've been around the sport long enough to recognize what we're getting ready to have to try to pull off, and it's not going to be easy. And that is to replace a lot of people. And I went to Rick and I talked to Rick about it. I said, Rick, you know, I said, I don't know what you got planned, but I'm not in favor of this. I think he needs to stay with you. He said, I think he does too, but he's got it in his head that he can manage a team, run a team, and do everything. He doesn't need me. So.
1: Did you have that conversation with Daryl? No. Really?
2: Mm-mm. Nope. Because. When Rick told me, he said, he's going to need you. He said, you need to stay with him. He said, he's going to need you. I just felt like that I needed to bite the bullet and and see what I could do to make sure it all came together. So when it was all said and done, we were sitting there. I think we had one race car in my toolbox.
1: (laughs) That's not funny, but.
2: No, and that's, and that's yeah. about the way we started, um, trying to order cars, trying to hire people, uh, everything. And, and like I say, he was still, I you know, but I wouldn't, he wasn't on crutches, but at the time he still used, was using a cane a lot getting around. He was not nowhere near where he needed, what he needed to be at the time. All this started to come, come to get together or happen like it did, um. You know, we made the debut and made the announcement at Rockingham. And fortunately, we were able to um, retain some of the personnel, and yet at the same time had to replace some of them. So it was like game on. And that's when, you know, I, I think I probably spent the most amount of hours in that shop and working on stuff than I had since being with Junior Johnson, we had two cars. I actually slept in the shop several, many nights, is put it that way, early on.
1: So what did it mean to you to go to North Wilkesboro early <laughs> that following year, 91, and when?
2: Um, here again, the, the, the satisfaction of being able to, to pull it off. To prove a lot of naysayers wrong. Um, I think what's interesting about that comment you just made about, you know, to win early on, I don't think anybody remembers how close we came to win a Daytona 500. Hadn't been for Richard Petty, we'd have won a Daytona 500 that day. We ran that well with that new, new car we gotten from uh, Banjo Matthews. Uh, Richard had, a, had an issue and basically ran into the side of us and took us out late in the race. We had a fast race car that day. But going to Wilkesboro, I think, was somewhat fitting because number one, um, going to Junior Johnson's backyard, back, backyard um, also, I think, you know, a lot of folks didn't think that we could build all our own stuff and come out and not win in a Hendrick car, per se, and and doing that was, like I say, it's just very, very satisfying, very satisfying.
1: Were you ever satisfied? That maybe he had made the right move, or were you all did you always have that in the back of your mind that maybe what might have been if we'd stayed at Hendrick?
2: Uh, I've had in the back of my mind what could have been if he never left juniors, <laughs> and that's how far that goes back. Okay. I mean, I think yeah. I think that there's um a lot to be said about you know, you got to spread your wings and see if you can fly, but at the same time. Look at what you got and be satisfied. But that's the one thing about Daryl. Daryl's never satisfied. If he'd won every race he got into, he'd be looking somewhere else around the world to go race to show that I can do it. So that's that's just his DNA. It don't matter. Even today, um, if he had an old-timers race, he'd want to go jump in a car and go. He, he never He's never mentally said he couldn't do it or wouldn't do it. So... I understand why a man wants to, to be that way and to try it. I think that a lot, of pe- a lot of drivers have tried and haven't succeeded, and there are several drivers who have, and they have succeeded. Richard Childress, he succeeded. Junior Johnson, he succeeded. Um, I can't say anything. I know what Dale Earnhardt succeeded. He was able to do something and do it away from his own you know, commitment with Richard Childers and succeeded. It's not something that everybody can do. And unfortunately for Daryl and his desire to try to get bigger and, and be more like Rick Hendrick, he made some more bad choices. And I think in the long run, you know, it cost him his organization as a whole. You know, And that that was during a period of time when I was in it. And then all of a sudden I was out of it and I got back in it. But I'll say something about mine and his relationship and sometimes my judgment <laughs> about where I should be and where I shouldn't be.
1: 1992, you get a job offer from Felix Sabatis to go oversee a new team that he's forming for Kenny Wallace. What was the conversation like with Darrell when you told him that you were thinking about leaving? Uh,
2: Here again, this is a story that probably has never been discussed. It wasn't that I got offered. I went out and sought relief. Did you really? I was Daryl once again wanted to do something that I didn't agree with, and this time, I, I laid the groundwork for my exit, and I did it in such a way to where he brought in a general manager, and the general manager decided he t- went ahead and told me he said we're going to do things different around here, and if you want to talk to Daryl, you got to come through me. Okay, I'm, I'm not wound yeah. that I'm not wound that way. Wow, that's not the way I do business, and I, I just I couldn't see where that was necessary. And I talked to Daryl about. It. I said, "Well, we want I really want to try this, and he thinks he can do this." And I've I've got all these people and all these sponsors I got to worry about. It's okay, fine, not a problem. And he had Western Auto still on board, and he just felt like that we weren't getting what we needed to get out of our operation, and he thought this guy that he brought in was going to you know revolutionize. The, uh, the company, as I say. In the meantime, I'd gone and talked to Rick Hendrick. Rick didn't have anything at the moment. He knew that Felix was getting ready to put this deal together for Kenny Wallace. And he lined it up where I could go meet with with uh, Felix. And I got everything in place. And my, my way of thinking that I had my ducks and a row that where if I needed to make an exit, I had a place to go. We went to Pocono, won the race, and I told Daryl, I said, we need to to talk. Because if you ever look at the the victory lane photos, usually you'll see me pretty close to Daryl sooner or later. That day, I wouldn't take photographs with him. That's how serious I was about what I was doing. I did my job. I got him a victory. This guy here that he just brought in is claiming he did it. I knew again this was a fuel mileage race. I made the call. I made the decision, and so when I got back to Charlotte on Monday morning, here again I went to my dad and told him. I said, um, "Not real happy about this deal. Not real pumped up about staying there." He said, "Well, you got to go see what he does." Well, I'm gonna tell you right now, if Daryl's not sitting in the office tomorrow morning, I said I'm gonna be gone there tomorrow from there tomorrow afternoon. He said, "Well, you do what you got to do." So went in there. And Daryl wasn't there, and I told my son, we need to talk first thing in the morning. I got Daryl on a conference call with, what's his name, sitting there, two other people. I went through what my problems with the situation was, and Daryl decided to back the decision that he wanted to keep the general manager. I said, okay, that's fine. I said, I'm gone.
1: So was it actually a, it's a him or me deal? Yeah. Really?
2: Yeah, I wasn't working with him. I mean, I, I told him point blank. I'm not working with this son of a bitch. I said, if he tries to tell me what to do, I said, I'm going to whip his ass. I mean, that's how bad it had gotten. It had gotten down to that. Oh, wow. I, did, yeah. I mean, I'm, there's certain things that sometimes cross me up, and that was just one of them that crossed me up. I just felt like, you know, that um, all the hard work we'd done, and him not, you know, wanting to discuss it one way or the other, and deci- making a decision that this is what I'm going to do without considering, and, you know, just sharing the information. I might have swallowed it better. I just I couldn't stay there and do that. I couldn't do it. So I felt like I couldn't leave him in any better position than getting him back, making sure he was on the Chevrolet Winter Circle Plan, NASCAR Winter Circle Plan, and he had that win for his sponsor. My hands are washed. I'm done. I'm good with this. And uh, so I left. And I, you know, rambled around for a little bit. Yeah.
1: So Jeff Hammond makes the move over to Hendrick Motorsports and he's working again with Daryl, but he's also on the same team as Waddell Wilson. And as Jeff mentioned last week, he and Waddell hadn't exactly gotten along over the years, but now that they're on the same team and Jeff is serving as basically a buffer and an interpreter between Daryl and Waddell and the rest of the team, it actually does take at least some of the pressure off. And I think that you could see that in the results. Steve. Is there anybody over the years that maybe you've had an impression of from afar, but once you got to know him a little bit better, the viewpoint maybe changed a little bit?
4: Well, I'm going to tell you what, this may surprise you a little bit, but the, the person that had that effect on me was Daryl Waltrip. When he first came on board uh, back 75, 76, 77B, and 77, being the smart aleck that he was, you know, I really thought that's all he was and i started to interview him one time i remember after a race in his hauler and i asked him a question i got an answer I asked him a question i got an answer I Asked him a third question and he shook his head no and held up his arms he was not going to answer any more questions and i had to leave the truck well i wasn't too happy with that <laughs> <laughs> i kind of thinking this guy runs his mouth and now he won't answer my questions i really think he's a jerk well, of course, as years went by and I had more interaction with Daryl. I found out that his opinions were pretty strong and pretty right spot on. He knew what he was talking about. And as he got to know me better, we became, you know, good associates. And I finally realized that he was who he was. And I didn't have any problem with that. I, so it changed from thinking he was a jerk to thinking he was a pretty much a regular guy. And pretty sharp, and I put it on a good driver. So and it all changed for me.
1: Well, Steve, here's mine. I would have to say you. <laughs> 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 now, now hear me out. Hear me out. In all seriousness, when we worked together, never once ever did I ever think that you were a jerk or, or a mean boss or a bad boss or anything like that. But when we worked together, you were the executive editor and publisher, and vice president, and so you were the boss. And I was just Rick Houston, staff writer, then Bush series editor, just lucky to be there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's not that we had a bad relationship, but you were the boss, and I was the employee. There was just a respectful relationship there. But a week from yesterday, Steve, it will be three years, That we've been doing this podcast. That's right. Over the last three years, I feel like me and you have gotten to know each other way better than we ever did when we actually worked together because we've certainly spent more time together. So, Rick,
4: I appreciate that, Rick. I really do. And you're right. We have spent a lot of time together and know each other much better than we did in the old scene days. And Steve, I'll go so far
1: as to say this I really consider you like a father figure, you're one of the ones that I go to with questions about life and everything. And I tell you everything that's going on with Jeannie and the boys and with Richard and all that kind of thing. So yeah, you're, you're one of my father figures.
4: Well, well, Rick, I'm flattered. <laughs> I really am a
1: little surprised too. Hey man, I'm just trying to get in the wheel and get some of your racing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there would catch here somewhere. Again, we have talked about this before many times on the podcast, but if I'm going to be honest. My sentimental favorite race of all time is always going to be the 1989 Daytona 500.
3: You can bet Darrell Waltrip's heart is pumping about 150 miles an hour right now as he has the Daytona 500, a race that he has never won in his illustrious career in his sights here this afternoon. He comes out of turn number four down to the start finish line. He will not pit this time. Harold Kinder has the white flag in hand. He puts it on Darrell Waltrip. One lap to go. Will that fuel last? You know Darryl Waltrip right now's blood pressure what? 250. They're back in turn one.
4: And you know
0: he's holding his breath now as they go back into turn number one. Waltrip is there. He's got the Labonte car right ahead of him drafting with him. Also the Rick Wilson car is there. Waltrip makes his move off the banking of turn number two. Right up on the rear end of Terry Labonte. He's just going to follow those two cars and let the two cars behind him help him along as well. Darryl Waltrip having no problem so far. Three-fourths of the way down the back straight away and still under power. I
3: tell you, the crew doesn't really know if it's going to make it or not. I thought they probably they would know or not know. They're standing here holding hands, and they don't know. Well, Waltrip d- under
1: power still in turn number three. I think he's going to make it. He, Darryl Waltrip calling the bluff, and he's
3: on his way. He could probably coast in from here. He's following Labonte to the line. Darryl Waltrip brings the Tide Chevrolet across, and he goes from lap 144 to lap 200 without a fuel stop. Here comes the battle for second spot. Schrader holds off Dale Earnhardt, but the celebration is in the Tide Chevrolet pits where fuel mileage is the story. If you've
1: ever listened to this podcast before, you know that it was the first race I ever watched from flag to flag. You know that I was with my best friend, Joey Step, and his mom, Sandy, and Joe Senior, and Jennifer, Joe's sister. And watching a race at their house was an event. But I don't remember specifically, but I would also imagine that it was the very first time that I ever picked up an issue of Winston Cup scene. And, Steve, we talked to Daryl about that day back in Episode 94.
3: Well, it's everything. There's a story to everything. My whole life's a story. Uh, that whole week leading up to the 500 was a story. Uh, B&R did the engines for Kenny Schrader and I, the, the Hendrick cars. And they had done some work to the carburetors. And so our carburetors were not illegal. They were not illegal, but they were just different. And yeah. uh, so I, we, we had gone to Daytona prior and tested. My car was so fast that we ran a smaller restrictor plate than we had to, so it wouldn't go so fast. So we're back down there, and we're getting ready to qualify, and we go through check. Kenny Schrader, same engine, same carburetor, same everything. He breezes right through. I come through with my car, and all of a sudden, they pull me off to the side. So I go in, and I said, what's the problem? He said, well, our crabs took our carburetor took her carburetor. He can't do that. <laughs> yeah, he said, it's illegal. He said, are you kidding me? So anyway, I go see Bill and I said, yeah, and they took our damn carburetor. So we go get another carburetor, which was a good carburetor. There wasn't anything wrong with it, but it wasn't as good as what I had. And we qualified second uh, because I didn't, it, it, the carburetor's worth about 10 horsepower. That was a lot back in that time. So Kenny's on Poe and I'm second. And uh, that's how that whole I had qualified on Goodyear tires. Now, you can't run Goodyear tires. you got to run Hoosier tires. I don't want to run Hoosier. I don't want to run Goodyear. Well, Goodyear had come there with a radio. Bill Elliott blew a tire in practice, broke his wrist, and Goodyear said our tires aren't safe for pulling the tires. So I've lost my carburetor. Now I'm going to lose my tires. Well, the Hoosier tires were smaller than the Goodyear's in diameter, say 90 inches compared to 88, which lowers your car down. So we put the Hoosier tires on. I go out, and I can't even make a lap. I'm bottoming everything out, headers, track bar mount, everything. So then we come in, and now we got to raise the car up, and that changes all the geometry. So we were in a dilemma. The, the, nothing was going well. The car didn't handle good on Hoosiers. Bottoming out, blah, blah, blah. We're just having all kinds of problems. So we work on the car right up to Sunday morning. We are still working on a Sunday morning trying to get our car like Kenny's car because he wasn't having the trouble. He was already on it. So we get a pretty close start to race run pretty good for a while, but then things kind of circle eight, cycle around and Kenny and Dale had the two best cars by far. Well, I was still bottoming out and every other thing and I'd come in every time a car's come out, I'd come in the pits, raise up the car, put some more rounds in Blah blah, blah, blah. We did that all day long. Finally, with about 54 laps to go, I think it was, uh, we're getting ready to go back to green. And I said, I'm gonna come down pit road one more time, put a couple more rounds in the front, Top this thing up with fuel. We'll see what happens. Well, we did. Came down pit road, popped her up with fuel, put some tires on her, went back out, and was no more cautions. went 54 laps green, and uh, that was the best my car had been since we put a Hoosier tire on it. It handled right. It drove right. I wasn't bottoming out. Started drafting. Hammond comes on the radio about halfway through the run. He says, if you save us a little bit of fuel, I think we can make it. I said, man, that's 54 laps. The furthest we've been all day 52. I don't yeah. think we can get two more laps. I don't think we can get five miles out of this, baby. But anyway, that's what we did. I drafted, drafted, drafted. Uh, Alan Kawicki was on the same strategy. He was going to try to make it to the end. Uh, and he had a – I didn't know this. I'm racing Kawicki, and I can't get by him. I'm, I mean, he's a little better than I was. And all of a sudden, we go into the first turn. He takes off up the hill, and I think, well, ran out of gas. He's out of gas, and there's still like two laps to go. So I'm convinced that he ran out of gas. I didn't know he had a flat tire. He had a flat, and had, and that's why he took off up the hill. So anyway, I'm screaming on the radio, and things quit running. It's not going to make it. It's blubbering. It's sputtering. It's spitting. It'd get in the corner and cut out, and it'd pick up on the straightaway. Um, I don't know how it made it, but it did. And that was the 17 weekend, you know, where car 17, 17th try. Name's got seventeen letters in a handicap. Seventeen house built on seventeen. I wish I'd have thought this because I, I I should have said how much fuel was left in your car. I should have said one point se, a point seventeen. <laughs> I didn't think about that, but that's about what was left in it. It was it was just meant to be. Uh, that was I I never forget. Hammond he comes to me before the race. He says, "What do you think?" I said, "Well, bud, we're either going to win or finish seventeen. I just don't know which yet." <laughs>
1: So before their last pit stop, Jeff comes on the radio and he tells Daryl, if you start saving me some fuel now, I think we can make it on one more stop. And he tells Daryl to draft anything. <laughs> he said, if there's a seagull out there, follow it. And I'm not so sure how that might've turned out, <laughs> given what happened to Dell Earnhardt a couple of years later. But then both Daryl and Jeff got to go to victory lane. Finally in the sport's biggest race.
3: Jeff, Jeff Hammond, you've been telling me sitting here on the wall,
1: I've been standing with you for 30 minutes that you couldn't do this.
2: Well, Dick, I couldn't, I couldn't tell everything I knew. I mean, you know, it was one of those kind of deals that, you know, we got to run along there and we thought for a minute we could catch Kenny and, him and run with him. And then all of a sudden, you know, I called Darren. And I said, Hey, what you're thinking? It might work. And he says, yeah, that's the only chance we got. We knew we couldn't run them down. So we said, okay, we're going to try it another way. So we just backed up to like plan B and that was just a latch on to whoever was in front of us and draft, draft, draft. And, you know, every time we were uh, talking to each other right there toward the end, Darrell said, hey, this thing's losing people. Shake it, shake it, shake it. So we kept hollering at him, shake it. And, and Randy was hollering at him. You know, this guy in front, he draft oh, him. You, and, and we you. were just we were hoping to pray. and praying. I'm telling you right now, the good Lord is the one to help win this race today because last year we needed Lady Luck.
0: You know, he was uh, kind of testing our metal, I guess. And today he finally gave us that little bit of a uh,
1: Well, I'll tell you, what Daryl said, that was gambling, and this is racing, and that's, that's what makes great. it all work. Great.
3: Thank you, Dick. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. We just, we're really appreciative. <laughs> this is a great win for us. Okay.
1: <laughs> Jeff called that win the defining moment of his career because he had taken a car that wasn't quite right because of a change from Goodyear tires over to Hoosiers and the handling problems that DW experienced because of that. And he still managed to figure out a way to take the car and Daryl to victory lane. So Steve, that was his NASCAR My, Hall of Fame moment, I believe.
4: Yes, I think you're right. Consider what Jeff said. He overcame adversity to win that race. Now winning the race is your good enough feeling. But imagine how Jeff felt knowing that what he had done to help that car overcome its problems got Daryl to victory lane. That's even a greater accomplishment.
1: I asked Jeff who he thought won the fight in the garage area after the Winston that year, the incident between Rusty Wallace and Daryl with a couple of laps to go. And he kind of just laughed and said that it was a draw, but that race, of course, really marked a turnaround in Daryl's career. And he went from bad guy to good guy almost overnight. Now I think the transformation had already started to a certain extent. But imagine what it must've been like for Jeff Hammond, because he had been there during the darkest days of anti-DW sentiment when they were cheering when he crashed. And when Daryl was inviting him down to the parking lot to fight or whatever. And then just a few years later, he was there when Daryl won the most popular driver award. So imagine what that must've been like for Jeff.
4: Well, I tell you, no, it had to be a good feeling for him. And it was a good feeling for me too, Rick, because I was the one that presented Daryl with the most popular driver award in New York for the banquet in that year. It was great. Okay. Now you're just showing off. (laughs) (laughs) I knew you'd say that. It was the the NMPA most popular driver award. The ceremony was in the Starlight Roof at the Waldorf Astoria. I was the president of the NMPA and I got to give Daryl the most popular driver trophy. He and Steve were just tickled to death.
1: Well, speaking of the NMPA, I joined the NMPA recently. So
4: oh, did you really?
1: Yes, I did. We're gonna oh. win us some awards for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> or not. <laughs>
4: <laughs> we'll see.
1: You know, when Darryl first joined Junior Johnson and Associates, he was getting booed. And Jeff didn't care. (laughs) (laughs) He was a Kel Yarbrough fan, but they start winning and winning solves a lot of problems. They get on the same page and now people are booing, not only Daryl, but Jeff and the rest of the team, because Daryl is their driver. So it was, I mean, Jeff knows of which he speaks when it comes to Daryl being booed and going from Mr. bad guy. To Mr. Popular, that was a cool
4: transformation. It really was. And I agree with you, Rick, in the sense that I thought the transformation was taking place before Daryl won the Daytona 500. I think that the more Daryl accomplished with Junior, the less the team received the boos from the fans and the grudging respect. And I think Daryl also began to change his tone as he was with junior, because he's becoming more established. And therefore I think he sort of changed his tune a little bit. I mean, he still could be a smart aleck every now and then He was, but most of the time, most of the time he was, he adopted a more, shall we say peaceful attitude.
1: Darrell got hurt at Daytona the following season in 1990 in July of 1990. He had already told Rick Hendrick that he was planning to form his own team beginning the following season in nineteen ninety-one. And Jeff actually went to Rick to talk to him about staying. He wanted to stay put at Hendrick Motorsports because he didn't think that it was a good move for Darrell to leave Hendrick Motorsports. And Rick told Jeff he's going to need you. So Jeff followed Darrell off into the great unknown. And when they first started, Jeff said that they had one race car and his toolbox. And that was it. And on top of that, Jeff's basically living at the shop 24-7, sleeping there. Many, many nights. Daryl was still using the cane quite a bit after breaking his leg at Daytona. So if I'm looking at that from the outside looking in, or maybe from the inside looking all around me, (laughs) I'm not too sure about the prospects for this operation.
4: Well, I wouldn't be too sure either. And I'm sure Jeff was feeling not too sure about the operation because they were starting at ground zero no question about it and i'll tell you what rick if you're going to build a team from the ground up it's going to be a long process particularly if you're doing it if the driver is also the owner i never really thought too many of those types of teams would succeed
1: incredibly Darrell won in just the seventh race of the 1991 season north wilkesboro but according to Jeff, Daryl had also had a shot at winning the Daytona 500 that year. So they were actually pretty good, according to Jeff, right out of the box. And Jeff said that he didn't really look back on the decision to leave Hendrick Motorsports and wonder what might've been. He looked back on DW leaving Junior
4: and wondered what they might've been able to accomplish. And I agree with Jeff. I think a lot of people would like to have seen Daryl and Junior press on because there's a whole lot of things they could have done together.
1: I don't know about that because I think that some of the shine had kind of come off the apple a little bit.
4: Well, the reason that was, is there was outside influences. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Daryl was talking to Hendrick, Hendrick was talking money. And when you have that conversation going on, it does take away from the effort and the relationship that he had with junior no Hendrick. Hey, who knows? You know,
1: 1992. Daryl wants to bring in a general manager. And let's just say that Jeff and this guy did not see eye to eye. (laughs) According to Jeff, this guy told him, we're making some changes. And if you want to talk to Daryl, you've got to come through me. Uh Uh-oh. And by this time, Jeff had been working side-by-side with Daryl for well over a decade.
4: And I would have the same attitude. Jeff had, if somebody told me what he was told. I just don't know how
1: that was supposed to work, especially when it came to race weekends and what the car was doing and what it wasn't doing. But Jeff started looking for a way out and he goes to Rick Hendrick again. And even though Rick doesn't have anything available at the time, he tells Jeff about a deal that Felix Sabatis was putting together for Kenny Wallace Daryl wins at Pocono and that's the race where Davey Allison flipped so badly after contact with Daryl and in the victory lane photos, Jeff is nowhere to be found. So that relationship was pretty toxic at the time. I it would was, imagine
4: It was definitely on the rocks by that time.
1: The next day, Daryl and the GM and a couple other people got on the conference call the next day or so. And Jeff basically gave Daryl an ultimatum and said, it's basically him or me. And Daryl chose to stick with the GM. And so Jeff said, see ya. And he moves over to Sabco to work with Kenny Wallace.
4: I think he did the right thing because as you pointed out, he had all that time with Daryl during the Junior Johnson years. And then again with the Hendrick years. And then Daryl brings in somebody else to serve as a buffer between him and Daryl. Well, that's just not going to work. I've just spent all that much time working with Daryl and now to be basically separated from it by a guy who says to get Daryl, you're going to have to come through me. Get a Daryl after all this time, uh-uh. Jeff did the right thing.
1: Now I will say this, I can kind of understand where Daryl was coming from in the sense that I'm sure that he felt like he needed some help running the team day to day, running the business side.
4: Yeah, Exactly. I'm sure the general manager's job is to oversee the team and the expenses. But why make him between your crew chief and yourself? Yeah, Put him to the side You say, you handle a business, you leave us alone with the car. Maybe that's not what the guy was supposed to do. And maybe the arrangements aren't anything like I've mentioned. But it seems to me that if it was the business side, Daryl should keep him there.
1: Maybe if it had been handled a little bit differently, it would have worked and Jeff would have been happy and would have stayed. And if he had stayed with Daryl, you know, maybe Daryl wins a few more races than what he did. I, I don't know, but it's one of those things to think about.
0: Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens, and if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports, so whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com, and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop, and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter "scene" at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com, that's com.
1: the April 25th, 1991 issue of Winston cup saying, Steve, you did your commentary <laughs> on your reaction to the first union 400 at North Wilkesboro and in it you wrote after the race, there might not have been much moonshine drinking. Steve, this was North Wilkesboro. <laughs> of course there was moonshine drinking. <laughs> and you, then you continue to write, but there was plenty of hard driving. And if a couple of drivers had their way, there would have been a couple of episodes of fist fighting. (laughs) So you had moonshine (laughs) drinking, hard driving and fist fighting. Typical short track race. (laughs) I don't know. This one was a little out of the norm. I think even for short track racing, there were 17 cautions in this event for a total of 87 laps and during one 81 lap stretch. There were
4: eight cautions and all of them were for wrecks. And up in the press box, we're thinking this race ain't ever going to end. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jeff Bodine was involved in three cautions and Davey Allison was involved in two. And the last time they got together in turn four for a quote unquote accident that also involved Harry Gant. And then as Davey began to move away from the wreck, Jeff Gundy's car and appeared to be going after Davey and Davey tried to move away, but still caught the back of Jeff's car in what was basically another crash. Those were not accidents. (laughs) You think? (laughs) (laughs) Jeff was immediately parked by NASCAR. And when he got out of his car, his crew chief, Tim Brewer was there and he hugged Jeff and basically tried to get him calmed down as they headed to the team's transporter. And Jeff came out a few minutes later. And he said to the reporters who were gathered there, now listen up. You better get everything you want when I do the TV interview because I'm not saying anything else (laughs) (laughs) on the TV interview. Jeff said, "Allison ran into the back of me. He ran into the back of me and spun me out. I guess it had something to do with what happened at Bristol last week. Okay, Jeff. (laughs) 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 And then Davey said about the first incident between the two. We were going into turn three, and I saw him coming down, so I jumped on the brakes. That started me into a spin, and I hit him. When Davey was asked about the second fracas, he said, all you have to do
4: is watch the tape. Well, NASCAR certainly didn't have to watch the tape to do something about Jeff.
1: Of course, Daryl was perfectly fine with everything that had happened that day because he was in victory lane, and everybody else wasn't. It was his 10th win at North Wilkesboro, and it was also his first victory since winning at Martinsville in the fall of 1989. Darrell said it was a pretty exciting race, at least from where I saw it. It's the second roughest race I've ever seen. Bristol last week was the roughest, but there was a lot of intent in this one, and I've never seen anything like it in NASCAR. There's just not a lot of discipline on the track right now. I saw so much out there that just wasn't necessary. I was amazed at what I saw. I can't explain it.
4: Well, I'll tell you what, Dale Jarrett was also involved in an incident at North on that day. And he pretty much echoed what Daryl said when he used the word respect, he said, we're out there racing and a lot of guys are losing respect for the other guys. They don't know how to respect the other guy and still race. I just don't understand it.
1: He also said that all the wrecks were caused by a bunch of idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Dell Earnhardt spun early in the race to bring out a caution, but he came back from that to finish second. And despite all the cautions and knowing his reputation, if there's a lot of cautions, you're thinking that he's going to be right in the middle of at least some of them, Jimmy Spencer finished third.
4: And to that point in his career, that was his best finish. In that race, I agree with you, Rick. Kind of surprising Jimmy wasn't involved.
1: Jimmy led once for 70 laps late in the race, but Daryl got by him on the outside of turn two on lap 349 for the lead. But Steve, for him to get there, you know, maybe he was involved in a few bump ups. Kyle Petty spun in turn four on lap 68 and Jimmy spun to try to miss him. His car stalled and he lost a lap. He made that lap up. But then he got busted for going too fast on pit road. And at the time, this being the first race for these new rules, the penalty for speeding on pit road was a full lap and he made that lap up under the ninth caution and then proceeded to set out after the leaders. Jimmy said, I was involved in a lot of accidents today. I don't know how I missed some of them and I didn't miss some of them. (laughs) (laughs) And because of the new rules for this race. Previously, there had been a limit on the number of tires that a team could change under caution. They could only put four tires on during this time and only two tires during this time and no tires under another whatever. But because of the rules that had been changed, Goodyear got caught kind of short with tires. And so they had a limit on the number of tires that teams could have. And because of those limits, Jimmy's Travis Carter-owned team had to borrow a set of left-side tires because they'd run out after being caught in so many scrapes during that day. And Jimmy said, we were the victims of a lot of accidents today, and we had some flat tires too. Those left sides that we got just didn't size up with what we wanted. We probably should have borrowed the whole set instead of just the left sides. As I mentioned, this was a pretty important race because after Mike Rich, a crewman on Bill Elliott's team, had been killed in an accident on pit road the year before in Atlanta, NASCAR had tried to fix things by implementing an absolutely mind-numbing number of pit road rule changes for the beginning of the 1991 season. And the nicest thing that anybody could say about those rules was that they had been absolutely confusing and then some. And teams were having to pit odd and even by the way that they qualified. So it it was just crazy. And teams were limited on tires and when they could put them on the cars. And at North Wilkesboro, the rules were changed to basically what we have now.
4: The process to make these rule changes actually happened many months before the season started. NASCAR held an off-seating meeting and invited several team owners to be at that meeting. And they were discussing how they could make pit road safer. The thing about it was, these cars weren't really slowing down. There were fewer cars on pit road. That did make things somewhat safer. But the cars were not being slowed down. And that's when Junior stepped in and said, look, put it on the drivers. Make them slow down when they come down pit road. If they don't slow down, penalize them. Eventually, that's exactly the way NASCAR went.
1: And as I mentioned just a moment ago, the move caught Goodyear by surprise. And because of the limits that had been placed on the number of tires a team could change and when they could change them, Goodyear hadn't been bringing as many tires to the track. And because of that shortage, teams were limited to two sets of tires for practice and qualifying and just five sets for the race. Where previously it had been unlimited, if you got the money, we'll sell you the tires. And teams that had fallen out of the race were reportedly letting their sets go in the final 150 laps in the final half of the race for as much as a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars a set. And at that time, I think the sets were maybe about eight hundred. I think
4: somewhere in there about that. You could tell from the press box which teams were going to go buy tires because you could see a crewman. With a wagon, (laughs) pulling that empty wagon down to another pit area and coming back with four fresh tires. This is pretty much routine in that race.
1: And it was let's make a deal. That's right. (laughs) Sterling Marlin had been burned in a crash at Bristol the week before. And here at North Wilkesboro,
4: Charlie Glotzbach drove in relief. And I didn't even know he was there. I mean, Charlie was a real surprise. The last time that Charlie
1: had driven at North Wilkesboro was 1974. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that spoke volumes of how junior Johnson saw the old timers. If they could drive back then, they can drive now. And so he
4: turned to Charlie Glatzbach. Right. And, uh, like I said, I did not even know that Charlie was there. And when we were told that he was now in the car, well, it really, really raised some eyebrows, but like you said, Rick, Junior knew that Charlie could drive a race car because Charlie drove for Junior back in 1971 when Junior and Richard Howard brought Chevrolet back to race. Their man was charging Charlie Cots back.
1: This issue also included a feature on Ray Fox Sr., who had gone into the NMPA Stock Car Hall of Fame as one of the sport's early mechanical wizards. So go ahead and talk about Ray Fox senior and you calling him about the NMPA hall of fame. We've got a chance for the hat trick now.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) I just let you go now. Rip
1: (laughs) at the time, Ray senior had gone over to the dark side and he was working for NASCAR as an engine inspector. And Ray said in this story, I gladly accepted the position. I've got 30 years of engine experience to give them. Now I inspect seller deer heads in pre-inspection. And when they come off the car after the race.
4: A logical choice. If you're going to inspect engines, why not get the man who built engines for years and one of the best at it in Ray Fox. I thought Ray was a very good choice for that position.
1: Of course, Ray Fox had built a car for many legends. He. Owned the car that David Pearson drove to his first victory. And he also owned the car that Junior Johnson drove to victory in the 1960 Daytona 500. This story laid out that scenario perfectly, man. It is absolutely amazing how that came together. February 6th, 1960, Ray is in his garage there in Daytona Beach. He's working on a customer's car. And a guy by the name of Francis Littlefield, who was an assistant to John Masoni. Who owned the dog racing track right there in front of the racetrack came to him with a proposition. Masoni wanted him to build a car for the Daytona 500. Steve, this was on Saturday and the 100 mile qualifying races were on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> the Daytona 500 itself was just eight days away.
4: Build a car for the 500? That <laughs> is a tall
1: order. <laughs> Ray turned the offer down that day. But the next day on Sunday, Littlefield was back and he said that Masoni would pay Ray double to put a car together to which Ray said, okay, <laughs> money talks. Ray lined up junior to drive the car. And we had an interview with junior Johnson for just our fourth episode that explained what happened next. You obviously won the 1960 Daytona 500. In that race, you were credited with discovering the draft.
5: How did, how
1: did that come about?
5: Well, it was an accident on my part, and uh, it uh, was something that I didn't know what I'd done. I knew I had something that nobody else had, but I didn't know what it was. And Cotton Owens came by, and I was out on the racetrack. Ray Fox is working on the car. He built a car for the track there, the dog track there, and he had two weeks to build a car and have it at the racetrack. And you can imagine how you know how much of a race car it really was. It's almost a street car, but that wasn't the worst part. Of it. It had a what a 409 engine in it, and that was really a truck engine. It wasn't a, a race engine. It was for. <laughs> Pulling heavy loads, not running <laughs> fast. So I was there to a pretty big disadvantage. But I anyway, when Cotton came by, I ducked in behind him. Just you know, I wanted to race with him. And unbeknownst to me, all of a sudden, going down the backstretch, I could run all over him, half throttle. And I said that you know, I think and you know, I really thought Ray had got the car fixed. We was. I don't know. Twenty mile an hour, slow. I went back in, and Ray he says, "Well, we we've got it running now, and all and and I didn't say anything because we, you know, it did run fast." And I told him, I says, "Ray, put me on a brand new set of tires and let me go back out and see how much faster it'll run with brand new tires on it." Well, I went out and I run three laps before. Here come jack smith in one of them pontiacs and he was the fastest pontiac of the whole bunch well I, right along about the flag stand i picked him up and about down at the end of the, the back stretch i could have passed him i was all over him going in the turn so i run him through that turn down in the front stretch and back down the back stretch again and i pulled off and went into pits and didn't say anything to anybody nothing about it i said it's just i almost came home i almost didn't stay down there because the car was so slow and i said, "Well, if i stay and i can do this all day long you know i might come out of here with a pretty good finish so i just kind of shut up about the car <laughs> and went on with my business and i knew what i was going to do that when that race started i was going to Uh, You know, go to the front through using the draft of the people that was out there. And it wasn't long I was up there. Uh, The first four or five cars, I I stayed in it a lot. But when they'd go to the pits, I just had to wait until one of them come out, you know. Then I could go back again like I was uh, doing, you know, while they was going from one pit stop to another pit stop.
1: Now, was there one car in particular that you followed that day or was it pretty much just pick and choose?
5: Pick and choose because the Pontiacs would get away from me every once in a while and I couldn't never get to them unless they come around again. I'd have to pick up some of the slower cars, but the slower cars, when you get to them, they'd speed up and you'd speed up. So it was a, a pretty good contest of being able to say that uh, you could uh, draft on a slow car and almost run with a fast car by itself.
1: When did you know you had the race won?
5: When uh, Bobby uh, Johns spun out. I knew I had it won then because his back glass flew out and the wind went in the car and sucked it up off the ground in the back and it turned around and around down through the grass it went. And I knew if... Uh, the wind was that big a hazard on his back end, he couldn't run anyway. And Jack Smith, what had happened to him to get to me was that Jack had come out and picked him up and drug him around there because he just burned a front wheel burn out, and they fixed that when The Pontiac people found out what was going on about 20, 30 laps to go. And Bobby was second to me Cause I'd been drafting all day, and he's running by himself, so he was, you know, not well ahead of. It. I thought, well, if some of them new Pontiacs don't come back out, I've got the thing win. And they f- figured out what I was doing, and they fixed that hub for Jack Smith and sent him out and drug Bobby Johns up through there, and they was in front of me
4: whenever. Uh, His back glass blew out as junior said, that was when the draft was discovered. It really changed super speedway racing all together
1: on the Tuesday before North Wilkesboro, Ernie Irvin received an invitation to attend a state dinner at the white house in Washington the next night. And not only did he go Steve, he actually sat at president Bush's table. And of course, Ernie had won the Daytona 500 that year, so winning the Daytona 500 is pretty special, but to get that kind of perk, that's something else. Ernie said, I'll bet eight or nine people told me they had watched the race last Sunday at Bristol. One guy told me he didn't like the new pit rolls. He said that even Ray Charles could see (laughs) that they were messed up. (laughs) I also got introduced to a man I didn't know, but who used to live on the same road I did in California. It turned out we knew some of the same people. And he had been in my dad's shop when it was in Monterey. It's really a small world. When you get to roaming around, I would definitely like to do it again. I wouldn't have any doubts about going the next time. I know that you've been to a white house dinner before, but president Carter wasn't actually there. Have you ever actually seen or met a president?
4: Well, Rick, no, I have not. The closest I ever got was at the white house. With Rosalind Carter. (laughs) That was as close as I got to a president. You got to meet Billy. (laughs) Yeah, we did. As a matter of fact, he gave me a can of Billy beer.
1: I actually did hear George W. Bush, Bush 43, speak a year or so after 9-11 here in Winston-Salem. So I have actually seen, albeit from a pretty big (laughs) distance, an actual sitting president. So that was pretty cool.
4: Hi, uh, this is Morgan Shepard, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast.
1: Last week was our 150th episode, and in it I included several short sound bites from the interviews that we've done over the years. And I asked folks to send in their guesses on who was talking, and we got several entries. And the winner is going to receive a copy of the Winston Cup scene covering Dale Earnhardt's 1998 Daytona 500 victory. Just for the record, here are the sound bites and the people who are talking. Here's Brett Bodine.
0: A couple guys made fun of me. Dale was one of them. And he said, what are you, some kind of... See, what do you need that thing for? You can't see with that. You can't turn your head.
3: Or Burton.
4: <laughs> I ate him by the damn uh, collar, and uh, then I saw Dad coming. Uh-oh. And Dad would whip all of us butts.
2: Travis Carter. Dale just like went nuts. I mean, he like he legitimately was afraid of that thing. Bobby
1: Allison.
3: There's one race in the NASCAR record book that has no winner. And I did win that race. And someday I will get credit for it.
1: Will Cronkite.
3: We came back in. I looked down inside there and I could see probably four inches of the bone in his
1: (sighs) forearm.
0: Rusty Wallace. I meant just to throw it at him and hit him like in a chest or an arm or something. Yeah. Well, I missed. I hit him right damn dead in the middle of the forehead.
1: <laughs> Buddy Parrot.
0: And we ran
1: from the front of the building all the way around to the back part of the, our shop. Naked as Jaybird, except for our, our boots. Ronnie Thomas.
2: He said, I'll give you $1,000. I need early caution. Here's one that
1: had a few people stomped, but this is Rick Mast.
0: Polar oh, moment of inertia. That's the center of where everything revolves. Lyndon Amick. I remember crashing down, looking up, and at this point, it's like a canopy of tracer rounds going overhead.
3: That's Strickland. We get up in the air, and Davey looks over at me and says, high five. One, two, you know, two guys from Alabama went up there and kicked everybody's butt. Bill Elliott. In high school, I couldn't get up in front of a group of three or four people. I was the shyest person probably in the classroom.
1: Dave Marcus.
5: But yes, I backed off and let Richard win the race because I was not going to put Osterlin on the winner's circle.
1: Michael McSwain. You call the tower and you tell them that they better be in victory lane because I'm going to whip Harvick's fucking ass. Kirk Shelmerdine.
2: Was it 30 years ago? I've been trying to get that shit back ever since, Rick, tell you the truth.
1: Del Earnhardt Jr.
2: But in that moment, all right. I wanted to
1: do
0: was hit that man in the face as many times as I could.
1: Donnie Allison. When I won the race, I walked up to Bill Gardner, and I poked him in the chest with my finger. And I said, I'm the son of a bitch who can't drive, remember? Bill Parsons.
2: The flipping isn't bad. It's the hitting, the landing that's bad. (laughs) And I remember during those 10 or 11 flips, probably
0: landed three or four times. Randy LaJoy. pulled my belt tight, and I'm watching, and all
1: of a sudden, the fence is gone, and I'm seeing a sky. Bobby Labonte.
3: Christmas rolls around. I'm, I'm really not feeling good. So I remember going to my mom and dad's house for Christmas,
1: and I don't think
5: I ever got out of the car. Junior Johnson. Gave it all I could. I didn't leave nothing laying on the table. Tuck it all way into the
2: racetrack.
0: Larry McReynolds. And
2: one of their crew members had me around the neck,
0: one <gasps> man had me around the waist. Really? And they hauled me out of there and threw me out of their pits.
1: Cal Petty. We are running fit.
0: You in the money? We are. We are
1: taking this pool. We're talking on the radio about it. David Pearson. I could have backed off, <laughs> but that ain't racing. Jeff Burton.
0: The biggest thing that I doubted was what I was feeling. Jack said to me one day he thought my assometer was messed up.
3: Bud Moore. The Lord, if you just get me back these five thousand miles, I gotta go and get me back home. I promise you one thing: I won't be back.
1: Ned Jarrett.
5: At the end of that race, I could literally see the bones on my right hand. It had just gone through the skin, through the meat, down to the bone.
3: Steve Meal. Here comes Richard Childers from behind me. Not in a run, but in a rush. And he goes, it's right there. And points at something under the hood.
1: Lake Speed.
0: He's walking down the thing there. Satan says, run
5: over him. The Holy Spirit said, don't you dare. Bill Gardner. We were not trying to show Bobby Allison up. What we were trying to do was to run the car to see what improvements we made that
0: we could give to Bobby the next week. Ricky Craven. I woke up or I became conscious in the helicopter, and I have this memory of hearing the
1: the prop. Mike Helton.
2: I just think this sport is made up of a a genuinely great group of characters.
1: Larry McClure.
3: He said, let me tell you something, Larry. I got it figured. I'm in control of the stern wheel, the gas pedal, and the clutch pedal.
4: You can't afford to keep me.
1: And Jimmy Means. He told me one time everything
5: he had was bent, broke, burnt, or pregnant.
1: Just for the record, I actually mixed these up quite a bit. (laughs) Because if I hadn't, people could have just went to iTunes and gotten a list of all the episodes in order and then went to my list and just kind of ticked them off in order. So all that being said, we had a bunch of entries
4: and eight got them all right. You mean to tell me that eight people identified every single one of those clips, eight Eight did yes, sir. I wouldn't have thought anyone could do that.
1: (laughs) Mm. So Steve, you see my Westing cup scene hat here? Yes, that's it. All right. So all the names are in this hat.
4: All right. Okay. Mix
1: them up real good. All right. And here we go. The winner Normal. of the 1998 <laughs> Daytona 500 Winston cup scene is Scotty Burgess.
4: All right, Scotty. <laughs> All
1: right, man. So Scotty, email me your shipping address and I will get your issue out to you as soon as
4: possible. And you are going to love it, Scotty. Scotty.